Namo Tassa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambodasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambodasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambodasa. Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self enlightened one. So, <clears throat> this evening I thought to try and uh, pull all these various strands that we've been talking about the, the psychology of the Buddha, uh, which is really an ethical psychology. And uh, the reason it's an ethical psychology because it's about this construct of a self <clears throat> which produces a particular relationship with the world um, which um, always has some ethical nature about it, some ethical decision-making about it, uh, both wholesome and unwholesome. So the, uh, this psychology is known as dependent origination um, remember that one of the basic tenets of his teaching was that nothing arises of itself everything arises dependent on something else nothing is independent nothing is an entity entirely of its own everything is dependent on something else and um, as far as I've read <clears throat> this psychology is something that did not exist before his time, although there were indications of it. But the fullness of his understanding about uh, suffering, cause of suffering, uh, is unique to his own insight. <clears throat> and that's why he was able to split off, you might say, as another strand away from the main uh, strand of the Rig Veda and what's now become known as Hinduism. There was another teacher, of course, at the time, who also had um, a deep enough insight to begin his own tradition, and that was the Jain leader, the Nigantha, uh, the Nigantha who was, an el was a contemporary elder of the Buddha. Contemporary elder. <clears throat> so, uh, let's begin at the beginning of this, uh, of this uh, cycle. It's a cycle. And the first word that's used is the word avidya. This avidya is translated as ignorance. And unfortunately, ignorance in English has a sort of pejorative meaning that you, you know, you're, you're ignorant, you're stupid or something. But in fact, the word is quite neutral. It means don't know. It means, it means a place of, there is another word, nescience, which I found. Uh, but nobody knows it, and I didn't know it before I found it. So there's, no, so there's no point in using it. But it basically means don't know. And remember, that's the position that I've been uh, urging you to discover, the equanimity, the coming from a place of don't know or at least not sure, you see, so that we always move from a neutral basis in our investigations. Now, you will find <coughs> that this ignorance, this avidya, is sometimes translated as delusion. But to me, uh, that's jumping one step ahead because uh, if we are essentially deluded, then how do we get out of that one? 
But essentially, we begin from a position of don't know. And then the delusion arises. See? And that means that we can go back to this don't know in a, in a very pure way. And that's why there is this movement from don't know to knowing, which is the movement from not knowing about the way things really are to the way things really are, which is the process of growing wisdom. See? Now, the, uh, the next word <clears throat> along the line is dependent on this not knowing, we have produced sankharas. And these sankharas are our habits, our conditionings, which have been developed through acts of decision-making in the past. See? These sankharas really are the expressions of our delusion. And because of these acts in the past, we've ended up with a certain set of habits. So in Buddhist psychology, one begins with an intention. We empower the intention to create an act. Uh, so many of these acts will produce a habit within us. And a compendium of these habits is the personality. And that personality will drive you to your destiny. See, And what we're trying to do um, is to become conscious of these habits and to see exactly where they're leading us and why they've led us into holes in the past and how we're going to escape holes in the future. You see, <laughs> That's the theory. So these sankharas, that first bit there, the not knowing, producing all these different habits based on a, a misunderstanding, which is this idea of a self, is, you might say, your substrate. That's running underneath everything you're doing the whole of your life, you see. That's why, so long, so long as there is some delusion of a self, right to the point of its destruction, there is always that mm, kink in the way that we see things, see. And it's only through reflection that we can correct that... Uh, that twist in the way that we're seeing things. And that's why reflection is so important. And uh, the Buddha is constantly in the scriptures asking us to yoni so manasikara, to reflect wisely, you see. So there's your first uh, two, two positions. From this position of not knowing, we have created this personality, these sankharas, these conditionings. And they lie as potential within the psyche. So if you take, um, uh, say, the image of a computer, it's all programming. It's in there. And it depends what key you press or what, 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 what stimulus this is on the actual keyboard that produces the program. So just as we don't know what's inside our computer, uh, we don't know what's inside here fully. See? And it's only in time becoming reflexive and having uh, certain uh, occasions in our lives that brings us up against this conditioning we have in us. So, for instance, um, we don't, like we were saying before, we don't know how attached we are to something till we lose it. See, we don't, like there's a whole area of things we don't know. We don't know how happy we can become. We don't know how loving we can become. 
Okay? All these things are illimitable, in, uh, indefinite in how much we can develop them. See? So those are your first two strata, those two things, and they're, they're sort of running, running underneath. Now, dependent on these things, the Buddha says, the body and mind arises. So without this consciousness, without this, without this as, a, as a running underplate, you might say, the body and mind would not be able to perform in daily life. Presumably, um, you just wouldn't happen. There wouldn't have been a birth, or there wouldn't be a birth from moment to moment. Hmm? So the body and mind now we've discussed as being two very separ- two separate energy systems, which is not the same as most um, reductionist stuff that you get from modern science, where everything is basically neurons and and electrical impulses and chemical changes. In in uh, the Buddha's understanding, definitely that's that we can say that's the body, but the mind is of a different order in terms of energy. But it still is the same as matter in the sense that it arises and passes away, doesn't have any substance, and is not me, not mine. So it's not as though uh, we've hit on some sort of eternal soul, you know, that continues and continues. It is also a form of energy. This uh, body and mind complex, dependent on that, there arises the six sense bases. So we have the five sense bases that we would presume. And on top of that, there's the mind itself as the basis into which the stimulus from the other senses come and is worked out and is, is sort of understood, parceled away, set into perceptions, things like that. And, of course, it also includes basic memory functions which are in the mind, which are, which are in the mind itself, you might say, which come up as images and thoughts. So those are your six sense bases. Now, dependent on the six sense bases, we make contact. Okay, and that contact is the primary point where something touches the sense base. So, in order for there to be contact. There has to be an object, there has to be some food, there has to be the sense base, the tongue, and there has to be an act of cognition. There has to be some form of consciousness there. If, I, if any of these are missing, then there's no contact. So it's quite obvious, for instance, if a person has lost their eyesight, they simply cannot see. It's as simple as that. See? If, if you're in a completely dark room, you won't be able to see. And even if you're in a completely full light room and you've got full eyes but you're unconscious, you definitely don't see. So it's a, it's a case of those three have to come together in a moment of contact. Okay? Now at that point, um, uh, everything is neutral. Right? There's, no, there's no understanding of it as being pleasant or unpleasant. That hasn't happened yet. That comes into the next section, which is Vedana. See, so as soon as you hit this Vedana, what happens is there is a categorization of everything that we're experiencing as either pleasant, unpleasant, or somewhere in the neutral. See? And that um, duality 
is natural to life. So it's quite natural for us to experience something as pleasant and something as unpleasant. And um, when we're talking about duality as a suffering, which you may come across in... um, It's too high, isn't it? Excuse me. Uh, When you come across the idea of um, duality, for instance, especially in the Zen tradition, duality, it's the next stage after that which we're talking about. At the stage of experiencing the world as pleasant and unpleasant, uh, that's simply a given. And there's... there's, um, uh, That's the way we are. That's that's part of our, uh, you know, function, the functioning of, of the human being, Right? Um, so this pleasant and unpleasant is often divided into the various senses. So there are pleasant and unpleasant and neutral sensations to do with the eyes, the ears, etc., etc., and within the mind itself, within the heart, within our feelings, within our body. Then there comes this uh, tanha. Tanha is a special word. It, dis- it, it um, refers to a desire which is based on wrong understanding. And uh, we don't really have a word for this in English because desire for us is, is uh, a virtually a neutral word. You can desire anything. But there is another word in the Pali, chanda, which uh, can be a good desire. So the desire to sit is, is wholesome. But this tanha refers only to those desires which are based on a wrong understanding of seeking happiness in the sensual world. And this is where we produce this uh, wanting and not wanting. So if Vedana, if the point of feeling is at the level of liking and not liking, the next level is to have a relationship with that which is wanting or not wanting. And this is where you feel your duality. This is the point where suffering arises because now you are in some sort of conflict with the world. Okay? We'll come back to that in a minute. This is now reinforced through a process of identity. I. So it's not just want, don't want. It's I don't want and I want. And that, that point there is a subtle identification with that, with that desire, you see? And you'll notice that it comes after the wanting. Yeah? In, in, uh, in language, we say, I want. But actually, psychologically, it's want I. It moves in that direction. And then as soon as that identity uh, grasps the object, it's called grasping, upadana, grasping, um, it's very difficult, in fact, I, I would say virtually impossible unless, you, unless your mindfulness is absolutely, you know, laser beam uh, to stop the empowerment. And this empowerment is where the energy moves into the desire to take it from a, um, uh, an idea into an actual. Right? That's when suddenly it becomes something, some act. And the word for that is bhava, becoming. Because 
It's not just a simple action. It's the re-becoming of the self. So at this point, the self is constantly re-emerging. It's rebirthing. See? So when we talk about rebirth, and people think of it as going from life to life, you can understand that if you grasp what's actually happening every so often in this present life. In this present life right now, when we go through this process, and we don't always go through it, like when you're asleep, when you go through it, the self is rebirthing. See? And every time it rebirths, it recreates itself, refashions itself, it's com- and it's reconditioning itself. See? That's, that's, what Buddha, that's what the Buddha meant by this rebirth. It's not the same thing being reincarnated. It's constantly changing, dependent on its experience, what it's empowering, and therefore producing new conditioning all the time. See? So you've got these three steps after the given. The given is the contact and the experience of something being pleasant and unpleasant. Then there's this other process of wanting, grasping, and becoming. See? And when we... St- then the, the next part of the, of, the, of the process is birth, aging, and death. Or the beginning of an action, having empowered it, the process through which it goes, and the end. So this dependent origination is happening continuously during the day. It's not something which is uh, happening just occasionally or from life to life. It's happening every so often during the day when this wanting clicks into into the equation and we rebirth. We keep rebirthing. So that's, uh, that's the, uh, the psychology of suffering. That's what the Buddha's pointing out as the psychology of suffering. In, uh, you, you'll also come across in a more traditional sense that the first part we talked about, the not knowing and the conditioning, belongs to a past life. The whole section that we've talked about belongs to this life. And the next section, the birth, the aging and the death, belongs to the next life. But actually speaking, this, uh, this seems to have been something which is, as we say, developed out of the Buddha's teaching. Um, the Buddha, as I read him, and, and I think as more and more people read him now, he's, he's not at all that concerned with the future. He's concerned with the presenting moment as it is now. And because there is only this moment, there is only you're either suffering or you're not suffering now. There's no point in, in, in working for a future which doesn't exist. Hmm? So his, the center of his attention is right now. And remember, he reduces all his teaching to this very simple statement. It's three words in the original Pali. It's dukkha, dukkha, niroda. It's suffering or unsatisfactoriness. Uh, the inability to be satisfied if you, if you equate happiness with what you're experiencing in this life uh, through the senses, through thought, through imaging, etc. And the end of that. See, that's all he's concerned with. That's why you don't get great metaphysics. You don't get uh, uh, 
flooded philosophy or anything. He's very centered upon this basic psychology, on the understanding that when a person cracks it, when a person moves off it, they themselves will come to know what Nibbana is. They themselves will have a, 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 you know, um, a wise understanding of life. So now, having uh, expressed how we create suffering for ourselves, he then points out, of course, how you undermine it. And it's not a case of unfurling it from the top. It's a case of taking away from the base. It's a case of undermining the foundation, this business of ignorance. Hmm? And he does that by the process of this vipassana, this... this uh, uh, technique of actually observing this process, seeing where the process goes wrong, and in the seeing, we're undermining this delusion which is causing the whole process. So every time we sit in Vipassana, we're actually cutting deep into the foundation of all our suffering. Um, However, he points, see, in the Four Noble Truths, he doesn't, um, he doesn't point to that point of ignorance, that's, should we say, presumed. And he doesn't point to it when it comes to the practice of Vipassana. He points us to the middle of this cycle where it becomes obvious to us, and that's at the point of wanting, not wanting. There's your exit. There's your real exit. And it feeds back into the original delusion of self. So that's why that uh, fulcrum between the Vedana, where we experience things as pleasant and unpleasant, and the reaction of wanting and not wanting, right in between those two points is the escape. See? And that's where our attention is all the time. So in your practice, when you have pain in the knee, that's your given. When you experience it as unpleasant, that's the given. When you feel averse to it, when you're afraid of it, that's your reaction. And it's being able to hold your attention in between those two, seeing those two, waiting for that reaction to die away, which is cutting through that desire, that wrong desire, and undermining the very foundation, because that's how you've always behaved when it comes to pain, and now you're behaving differently. See? When it comes to pleasure, such as when we're eating, you see, the food we put on our tongues will naturally, hopefully, taste beautiful. It'll be a very pleasant taste. Then you see this relationship we have, Hobbit, which says gobble. See? So it's knowing that and allowing that to pass away, eating in a, in a, a calm and signorial fashion. We, that, we, that we undermine that, um, that greed, and in so doing, it's not a case of just undermining the um, conditioning of greed. We're seeing where the problem is, and it's the seeing of the problem, seeing where the, the, the mistake is made, that is cutting the whole wheel at this base of not knowing. We're beginning to see where the problem lies. See, And every time we do that, this base of delusion arising out of the original not knowing is slowly being corrected. See?
Now, running along that line of growing wisdom through the practice, there has to run concurrent what we've been talking about a lot this week uh, is the purification of the heart. So we're moving from a position of not knowing to a position of knowing, a position of ignorance, a position of delusion to a position of wisdom. Right? That's from the point of view of knowledge, of, of, um, of uh, spiritual knowledge. But the heart has to follow that, see? Because that, that uh, delusion or wisdom is mirrored in our actions. And the actions are our virtuous actions or actions which lack virtue. Unwholesome, wholesome actions. So... Concurrent with this process of seeing things as they are, undermining this ignorance, uh, letting go of, this, of these desires, is the growth of virtue. So that from the heart's point of view, right, from the heart's point of view, this ignorance is, is, is a factor of innocence. Innocence itself comes from the, Greek, uh, from the Latin word, which means no harm. So originally, in this state of not knowing, we never meant any harm. Then we make this mistake of thinking that we are this self, and unwittingly, we begin to do harm. See? Then through the process of, um, shall we say, uh, reflection, we begin to realize that we are actually doing harm. (laughs) We're the ones who are doing harm. And when we see that, we're seeing unwholesome habits, habits which are unskillful, and we're beginning to undermine those practices which come from the heart of, um, of delusion, which expresses itself through you know, this, this, this uh, greed and the hatreds and the fears, etc., etc. So that eventually the heart purifies itself of that, Right, cleanses itself and ends up in a state of purity. These two lines must follow each other. You can't, you can't do the one without the other. This is the, the Buddha's, this is the Buddhist position. So with the growth of wisdom, there has to be a growth of virtue. Right? So you can't, I mean, you know, you can't end up with a Buddha who's caught shoplifting. It just wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't tally. See what I mean? You wouldn't, you wouldn't end up with a Buddha who gets angry because his food hasn't arrived on time. See, I mean, it just wouldn't... There are certain things that don't tally with us. And the presumption is that with the, with the, and with the awakening, there also comes this virtue, see? This virtue. Uh, and as we spoke, as we spoke when we, we talked about the, um, the Eightfold Path... That's when the wisdom that we're gaining through the practice of vipassana is being turned into better attitudes which then affect the actions that we take. So now, dependent origination is moving on a slightly different, uh, different uh, motivation. So instead of this feeling comes up, this knowledge comes up, instead of 
moving from greed, from aversion, from fear, we're now making our decisions from love, compassion, sympathetic joy, and all the rest of it. See? And in that way, through the same psychology of intention, we're actually developing the good heart. So these two things have to, as it were, move together in order to produce the Buddha mind at the end. The Buddha mind, the Buddha heart, they run together. You can't, you can't have one without the other. And sometimes that's been difficult when, uh, uh, shall we say, Buddhist practice first came in to this country as practice, or the West as practice in the 60s and 70s, uh, because then there was a sort of... Um, a reaction really, and probably still is in, in many quarters, against uh, Victorian ideas of, um, of morality. But uh, you can only get so far, you see, without looking at your moral behavior and beginning to do something about it. And the more you work on the moral side of your life, on the ethical side of your life, the more it works into your wisdom side. So the both uh, move together. Remember, every time we do something which is unethical, which is harmful both to ourselves and to others, or both ourselves and others, we're creating these turbulences within the psyche. And these turbulences manifest later as painful sensations, maybe guilt, maybe shame, maybe remorse, maybe still even more vindictiveness, more revenge, more hatred, see? And that's often what we're working with <clears throat> when we actually sit is the consequence of, bad, of, of previous uh, unwholesome actions. So that's the other side of this, uh, of this equation. The, the side that is the wisdom path, which runs through this process of vipassana, and the side of ethics, the side of virtue, which runs through the process of actions, virtuous actions. So when it comes to those actions we see are unskillful, unwholesome, we don't empower them. Simple as that. Simply don't, you, you wait to that desire to pass away. You don't, you don't respond to it. Whereas those things that we see are virtuous, we pump our energy there. And very slowly, the whole of our personality moves, you see, from darkness to light. That's how it's, um, that's how it's often explained. Are there any questions arising from that? Yeah, sorry, I forgot. Yeah, no, that's I forgot that bit. <laughs> Thank you. I forgot that for the link. <laughs> from uh, sorry, let, let me go back on that process. I'm sorry about that. Uh, from the original position of not knowing, uh, we have produced these conditionings. 
It's because of these two, because remember, not knowing is a form of awareness, form of consciousness. It's because of this that consciousness arises. That's, that's the bit I missed out. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, that consciousness is, in this, in this wheel of cognition, in this wheel rather, is the consciousness that comes with contact. It's the same, it's the same uh, level of knowing. And because of that, uh, this body and mind arise. That's the way the Buddha saw it. And uh, it, they actually feed off each other. Because of the body and mind, consciousness arises. And because of consciousness, the body and mind arises. So those two things actually work off each other. And they are uh, part of that process which comes from the original base that's running underneath us, remember, of a consciousness which is not knowing. It becomes conscious. That's basically what's happening. Yeah? And it's becoming conscious with a certain conditioning. See? So that's your basic thing. So as soon as you enter into a moment, this consciousness arises at the same time as the body and mind. And at the same time as the body and mind, you've got the six senses. And at the same time as the six senses, when we're in contact, contact arises. So those first opening um, gambits arise all at the same time. See? And then there's a time moment after that when there's a, uh, a recognition of the contact as being pleasant and unpleasant. So that's afterwards. Then there's the reaction, which comes afterwards. Then there's the identity, which comes afterwards. And then there's the empowerment through the will, which is the becoming, which comes afterwards. And that whole thing feeds back into this underbelly of, um, of uh, conditioning, the underbelly of conditioning, and the whole process arises again. The observer of the mind, mm. not the body. Now, you see, what's happening is, in Vipassana, we are pulling out this essential um, knowing. This is a word I prefer to consciousness or to um, awareness or anything like that because the word knowing in English is rather fortunate. It's both a noun but it's also a verb. So it stops you from, um, it tells you more the function rather than what the object is, the knowing. So when the knowing pulls out of this process, right, it then uh, no longer fuels it. This knowing was once buried in that process. It did not distinguish itself from that process. If you ask the ordinary person in the street, uh, who hasn't come across any medita uh, med uh, meditation or anything like this, they're just, they're just running with the wheel. See? They're not, they're not, they've not come back on themselves. They're not observing themselves at all. So that which observes us is, the, is this knowing which is buried in delusion in this process. It's buried in the process of being the body and mind, of being the person. It believes itself to be the person, this person. I am, I am me. 
See? As soon as we begin to meditate in this Vipassana fashion and we pull this knowing out of that process, we can still see the process going because it's part of the body-mind complex. But now we've disidentified. See? And this disidentification is part of that, that process of, of growing wisdom about what the body is, what the mind is, and how we produce these conditionings, how we produce this internal atmosphere that we call our emotional mood life. To pick up on that, is the knowing you refer to then the sort of small stuff? Well, because what I'm interested in is where does, where does the big mind come in? No, that is the big mind. Okay. Yeah. The knowing, the knowing is your, is your, is your primary intelligence. It's the intuitive intelligence which is prior to thought, prior to emotion, and prior to the body. And we know that because we can pull it out, as it were, and begin to observe the body, observe emotions, and observe the mind. See. And uh, we can say that the process of awakening is exactly that. It's the awakening of this intelligence which has confused itself with that process. Mm, with that process. And by abstracting itself out, disembedding itself, untangling itself, that's, the Buddha, that's one of the favorite words of the Buddha, untangling itself, it, um, it begins to recognize its own quality. See? Just the knowing. And we've spoken about the position of the observer, where we feel ourselves to be the one who knows. And that also is a false self, but it's a damn sight better self to be than all the rest of it. (laughs) And it's from that self of the observer, as we concentrate on things, that the er in that observe disappears and there is just observing, there is just feeling, there is just experiencing. And those are our points, those we can call them nibbanic points, small n. Um, just to question. Um, I noticed that when we are um, meditating, uh, the knowing is there, okay? And s- it becomes uh, sometimes Yes. Right. Yeah. On, you know? So I see this, uh, how do you call it, overtaking. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Know? So you're, very simple, yeah. Know? What you're seeing is the power of, of the conditioning and the fact that the knowing begins to lose that position because of its internal delusion. The delusion lies in the knowing, it doesn't lie in the body and mind. I'm not in the, in the thoughts. No. The thoughts are the expressions of delusion, what it's created through delusion. It's the knowing itself which isn't seeing properly. See, that's why the Buddha keeps saying, begin to see things as impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self, and that is the process of liberation. How do the observing and the knowing relate to each other? Is 
They're the same. They're just different words. Observing, knowing, feeling, experiencing. But in this particular, in this particular way... Hmm. Yeah, they're just. I mean, it's you know, it's different, difficult in English, uh, in Western languages, because we don't have that same spirituality. You know, the words of our spirituality really belong to the to the path of the heart. So it's difficult for us to find. We do have this lovely word insight, which which really captures the intuitive nature of that intelligence. It's not a thought process. You either see it or you don't. Yeah. It's no, it's always there. It's even there in sleep. No, it's not as though it's dying. It's not as though it's part. It's always there, but it's either awake or it's lost in in. Uh, it, it's lost in its own delusion. See. Ah, I see. That's that's the double bind we're in. Okay. How the whole definition of delusion is that you don't know where the delusion is. If you knew, then <laughs> you wouldn't be deluded. <laughs> so that's why the Buddha, having perceived this way, tells us to keep looking at these three characteristics, and in so doing, the the eye gets corrected. That's it. Yeah, yeah, you can't stop. It's, um, every time you stop, you get worse. It's no, <laughs> you're, on a, you're on a training which you can't stop. If you stop, you keep going backwards. There's no still point. It's relentless. But that shouldn't, uh, uh, you know, depress us. That should, <laughs> I should, that should urge us to greater effort. And we've seen here that the effort isn't some, you know, we're not, we're not out, you know, digging roadways and, you know, and channels. We're not, we're not, we're not working with huge mathematical problems. It's a very relaxed investigation. This is just, you know, we've got all the time of the day. Haven't we? <laughs> I mean, who's in a rush? <laughs> Well, I say 25 years because people, you know, they, 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 we expect results these days. You know, you, you join a course and you get a certificate and, you, and you're away. Uh, and it doesn't quite work like that. And, of course, what we discover are these, these conditionings have enormous power over us. We think, um, we think we've cracked it and before you know it, you, you know. I mean, uh, you know, one a simple thing like a person might stop smoking and struggle with it, and that's it. They finished, you know. For years, they never, they never, you know, touch it. And then, then they they get that hubris that they they now finished with that habit, and they make an active decision to smoke, and that of course empowers the whole system. Before they know it, they're, they're off again. So we we have to know these weaknesses. We have to sort of uh, keep awake to them. That's all. Yeah. 
Yes, absolutely, absolutely, yes. Uh, forgiveness is a virtue we must uh, develop to the highest degree. <laughs> yes, and you have to have that resilience, you know, in, in, the, in the words of the old, um, uh, what Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers uh, put it beautifully, see? Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start all over again. So if you can't, <laughs> if you can't do that, you've had it. Yes. Then to bring it where then that statement arrives observing sort of separation. Then to bring suffering, the knowledge of impermanence, the knowledge of non-self. How do you bring that to that? Well, as I you know, as I say, you can make it as a, a an active investigation on one of those things by beginning your meditation, saying, Well, during this time I'll just be more aware. Um, of uh, impermanence. I'll be more aware of, of these desires that arise. I'll be more aware of how things are arising out of my control, not me, not mine. But eventually, um, you know, after you've done a, a sort of retreat like this, it's as though we know that at an intellectual level, and therefore all we need do is put ourselves into the position of the objective observer. See, as soon as we're there, it's beginning to see things. The observer seems somewhat sort of silent or still. Hmm. Yes, that's right, but um, it, will, it will tell itself what it knows every so often, and that's why it needs the intellect. That's why after the Buddha was uh, awakened, he had to use his intellect to tell himself what he just actually realised. That's how he worked out this dependent origination. And then he went off and taught it. So first you look, then you see, and then you tell yourself what you've just seen. <laughs> it, becomes, it becomes self-conscious then, it becomes a conscious thing. And sometimes you do get the, the feeling that you just keep doing the same thing, the same thing, the same thing. But remember that the, the more you see it, the more you see the same thing, the deeper the insight cuts. So it's not as though you can stop the exercise around eating, for instance. One keeps doing that, keeps doing that. And over time, it, uh, it has a, a real systemic effect on your habits. Sorry. And is there a, is, is there a, a practical virtue per se in, in meditation? So even if one wasn't to shine the light of awareness in relation to impermanence, etc., just the pure act of meditation. Yeah, of course. The, the, that's what we're talking about, the seven facts of enlightenment. They're always being uh, developed and exercised every time we become the observer. See, there must be, they must be being exercised or else you wouldn't be there. So as soon as you awaken that sort of awareness... The other, the other factors of enlightenment are, are being uh, exercised. So it's the observer that comes to the realisation that you're a smoker and if you pick up a cigarette, you're a smoker again, or mm. you're a Well, it's your wisdom, yes. Yeah. That's your known. That's and the duality of, of pleasure and unbound um, 
liking, disliking, or fear and love, which is mm. That's felt by the observer. Oh yeah. In fact, it's. No, I, you see, these words, um, the way I use words is the body, which is pretty straightforward. The heart, by heart, I mean your emotional life. I know the heart is often, you see, that, that's the language of the, of the West, the heart meaning the sacred heart, the, the one who knows, frankly. And the mind is, is that which thinks. I've tried to use the word psyche to combine both the heart and the mind which we would in ancient, we, we, we would in medieval times have used the word soul to point to that because these weren't split so, so obviously as they are these days, these two functions of feeling. Often when you talk to an Easterner, especially a Far Easterner, uh, they'll point to their heart when they say, I think, because eh? that's, that's where they, they centre their attention. Eh? Whereas we, we tend to point over here. <laughs> so it's... The, the soul, because in, in, um, you know, in medieval philosophy or psychology, there was the body, there was the soul, and there was the spirit. See? Um, you, you haven't referred in all this to some spiritual awareness, but is that the awakening of the observer? Definitely. Nice. Definitely, yeah. Uh, one tends to try not to use words which belong to the Christian uh, path because of confusion. I tend to keep off obvious um, psychotherapeutic words like neurosis and ego and superego. It's absolutely confusing. <laughs> Try to keep sort of a, uh, a regular English, you know, to like consciousness is so confusing. The word is used all over the place now. It's, to me, when I read some writers, it's being confused with thought, confused with mind, you see. So, so using the word like the knowing, I think, is pretty clear. That's a, that's a, that's, there's a clarity about that. The knowing, the observer, you get, you know, especially when you've actually experienced it and you can sit there and you're, you're observing the body you can, and then you catch a thought coming up and you know, oh, well, you know, the thought isn't the observer. The observer's seeing the thought. The observer's seeing the, the image. Very good. I can only hope. My words have been of some assistance. May you be liberated from all delusive conditioning sooner rather than later. Amen.